You're listening to the Addiction Medicine Podcast, the official podcast of the Governor's Institute. If this is your first time listening, thanks for joining us. The Addiction Medicine Podcast is designed for healthcare professionals and others interested in addiction medicine and will feature thoughtful conversations and insights from clinicians, patients, and families, policymakers, and other stakeholders. Remember to make us a favorite wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay connected with us at governorsinstitute.org or follow any of our social media channels at at GovInst. Over the last year, there have been important changes and requirements related to prescribing buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. In December 2022, Section 1262 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2023, also known as the Omnibus Bill, removed the federal requirement for practitioners to apply for a waiver to prescribe medications like buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder, or OUD. This means that now, all practitioners who have a current DEA registration that includes Schedule Three authority can prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder in his or her practice if permitted by applicable state law. The Act also removed other federal requirements associated with the waiver, such as discipline restrictions, patient limits, and certification related to the provision of counseling. To better understand these changes, we're talking to Dr. Blake Fagan. He's Clinical Director of Substance Use Disorder Initiatives at the Mountain Area Health Education Center, MAHEC, in Asheville, North Carolina. Dr. Fagan, thanks for being here today. Let's just jump in. But let's start at a 30,000-foot level. Now, without a requirement for a buprenorphine waiver, can any doctor prescribe buprenorphine? Well, thanks for letting me uh, be here with y'all. Um, so not quite. It, it does make the process a lot easier, though. Um, that uh, act that passed in December of uh, 2022 said that any prescriber who has a DEA license can now prescribe uh, the buprenorphine. Um, so first you have to have a DEA license. And then any prescriber, um, be that a nurse practitioner, a PA, um, or a DO or MD can prescribe them. However, along with that was a compendium act called the MATE Act. So the first one was called the MAT, M-A-T Act, and the second one was the M-A-T-E Act. And it said that um, everyone, when they come up for renewal after June um, of 2023, come up for renewal for their DEA, are going to need to uh, certify that they've done eight hours of training um, around opioids or substance use disorder. So for prescribers out there, what does that mean? Well, if you've graduated in the last, let's say, four years from a medical school in which you did eight hours of training, you're good. If you did do the previous eight hours as a physician or 24 hours as a um, PA or um, certified uh, nurse midwife or a nurse practitioner, you did those 24 hours of training for buprenorphine, you're good. If you are an um, addiction psychiatrist or you have a fellowship in addiction medicine, you're good. But for the rest of y'all that um, just have a DEA license, there's going to be a requirement that you get eight hours of training. And it's um, a little checkbox that you'll see that's new when you um, sign up for your DEA and pay your $888. So it sounds like the process is easier now without having to formally apply for a waiver. Can buprenorphine for OUD be prescribed in any kind of setting? Yeah, it actually can. So you can prescribe it now as an outpatient. You can prescribe it in the emergency department. You can prescribe it in the hospital. 
Um, you can prescribe it in a skilled nursing facility or a continuous care retirement community, nursing home, those kind of things. Why is there then this extra educational requirement for the medication in the first place? Is it a dangerous medication? It's not, is it? It's, it's actually not. It's um, much uh, safer than all of the full agonist opioids. And what that means is any other opioid actually uh, that's out there is a full agonist and buprenorphine is a partial agonist. And we'll hear more about that uh, later in the podcast. So it, it's actually built to be safe. And um, the the FDA, or sorry, the federal government just wanted everyone to get some uh, additional training once. It's only a one-time requirement. So when you sign up this next time for your DEA and you have your eight hours uh, and you check that box, you won't have to do that again in the future. All right. So buprenorphine, safe medication for treating OUD. What do you say to folks who think that using buprenorphine is, and, and I've heard these words, just substituting one addiction for another? Yeah, that's one of our biggest uh, stigma biases that we um, hear about within the medical profession. But I also want to say with patients and patients' families, you know, hey, I don't want to get on that medicine. It's just substituting uh, one addiction for another. So I try to give them a, a, a story that maybe most people can relate to, and it's about diabetes. And let's say that uh, someone has uh, an 11 year old who gets very sick and you go to the emergency department and you find out that they now um, have a sugar of 1000 and they're very sick. They get admitted to the hospital and find out that they have type one diabetes. As they leave the hospital, they're now on an insulin pump. And um, the parents might ask once like, hey, is my daughter ever gonna get off this, uh, this pump? And, and, and the answer is no, um, this, your, your daughter needs this. Do you remember what it was like when she when she wasn't on the insulin and they're like, yeah, she, she almost died. And I'm like, yeah. And uh, so no one would say that that 11 year old is addicted to insulin, but they would say she's dependent on it. As long as the insulin pump is working, doesn't get clogged up. She does great. When she doesn't take her insulin or the insulin pump's not working correctly, she can get very sick. Sugars can go up. She has to go to the hospital and um, could have untoward events, uh, um, un unfortunately, including death if it's not caught in time. And that's what buprenorphine is. If you get on buprenorphine, it stabilizes the brain. People's withdrawal goes away. You can drive their cravings for other opioids to zero or near zero, and they can do life. And they're dependent on it. When they're not on it, the cravings come back. They have a real desire to go back to using um, whatever opioid they were using. The most common one out there now is fentanyl. But when they're on it, um, they're doing much better. So they're dependent on it, but they're not addicted to it. You're not substituting one uh, addiction for another. That analogy makes a lot of sense. Taking this a step further for people who might think that buprenorphine is a short-term treatment and might be able to be prescribed then in tapered doses or to detox, de detox patients off of opioids, it doesn't sound like it works that way. That's right. Um, and there's data to back this up that, yes, it, the medicine can be used for a, a short taper or for detox, but it doesn't work well that way. We don't have great data, but we have some data that says that if you're early in your recovery and you start taking buprenorphine and then you taper off uh, what I would say is too soon. And what is too soon? Again, we don't have great data, but probably if, it, if you've been in your use disorder for any length of time and then you get on buprenorphine, if you come off or taper off the buprenorphine in less than a year, it doesn't allow the brain time to kind of reset or reprogram itself, uh, so to speak. And so from the time you take your last dose of buprenorphine, let's say 
two months into it, you've been taking it, you've been doing great, but you taper off. From the time you take that last dose, there's a 90% chance that you will return to use within six months to a year. And when you do, there's a high likelihood that you may overdose or overdose and die because you've lost your tolerance to the drug that you were taking. So if you take the same amount that you were taking in the past, then you have a high likelihood of overdose. So we really don't promote, I don't promote um, um, quick uh, detox. What we say is that, hey, you should be on this medication for as long as it benefits you. And uh, for some people, they're gonna eventually come off this medicine. Um, and when they do, they need to have a prescriber um, along with them on that journey that sees them often, checks in with them about their cravings, those other, uh, those kind of things to make sure they're okay. Some people will successfully come off, but um, just an, another analogy, 95% of people that have high blood pressure in America never come off their high blood pressure medicines. 5% do, um, but for those 95%, we're reducing the chance of heart attack and stroke. Um, so the same way is, hey, if this medicine benefits you, you're able to do life, take care of your kids and your family unit, get to work, then it's great. So just to put a cap on this, whether it's buprenorphine, insulin, whatever it is, if it's life-saving medication, whatever it is, people need to stay on it basically as long as they need to yeah. and have a prescriber along, a doctor along for the journey if they're thinking about tapering. That's right. So if somebody begins medications for opioid use disorder like buprenorphine, at any point in their life, the idea is then they could still be taking this medication as they age. They could even begin treatment when they're in a more advanced age. What special considerations apply to this patient population, the advanced age or aging population? Yeah, this is a great question because this is ha happening and is going to happen, right? There's people that are in their 30s and 40s that um, disclose to a provider that they have an opioid use disorder. And now that the X waiver is not there, more people um, are going to be prescribing buprenorphine and, and then connecting them to, um, to care. And they're going to be on this medicine, again, for as long as they benefit them, uh, as long as it benefits them, which could be for um, years. So then some of them are going to become um, older and uh, they're going to be our elders, however you want to describe that, maybe 65 or, or older. And um, so there's special considerations for all medicines once you get older. Um, the body metabolizes them differently. But I do want to say buprenorphine is safer than all other opioids that are out there. So for, for folks um, that are prescribers right now and you're writing um, chronic opioids for patients that have chronic pain, like I do. I write that. And some of your patients are older. Just know that um, it, buprenorphine is safer than hydrocodone, oxycodone, uh, fentanyl patches, all of those. Um, as you get older, you have an increased risk of falls, overdose, and, and death. And with buprenorphine, it's much safer uh, drug. Let's jump to the other side of the age spectrum, the younger population. Research I know is showing that prescription opioid misuse has become a leading cause of unintentional injury and death among adolescents and young adults in the U.S. Is buprenorphine appropriate then for a younger population as well? It is. Um, so buprenorphine is FDA approved down to 16 years old. Um, it is difficult uh, in the United States to find a prescriber that will write the medicine under 18. Um, more and more states, including our state of North Carolina, are trying to make that easier by finding um, who the prescribers are and making sure that everyone knows uh, how to get the, the patients to them. Um, but 
think about it is, um, you know, you're adolescent, you feel uh, indestructible, uh, your brain um, it doesn't fully mature probably until somewhere around 25. And so you're not making great choices. Um, and then you develop a use disorder as a 16 or 17 year old. That population has a very high risk or a very high chance of having overdose or overdose death. And this is a life-saving medication. So putting that person um, on buprenorphine, stabilizing their brain so they make better choices, but then also knowing if you're on buprenorphine and then you do return to use, let's say with fentanyl, the buprenorphine actually protects, covers those um, mu or opioid receptors, and you're much, much less likely to overdose. Um, so we do want to treat our adolescents um, with this medication if it's appropriate. What happens when a patient taking buprenorphine for OUD needs a surgical procedure? What do clinicians need to know when they're providing medications to help with, say, pain related to the surgery? Yeah, so this is a difficult one because the first thing I want to say is we don't have randomized controlled trials that tell us how best to take care of a surgical patient that's on buprenorphine. Um, uh, there are websites out there. Um, Harvard has one, Stanford, and uh, the University of uh, California, San Francisco. I just want to mention those because I use those websites when I get these questions from uh, surgeons that uh, contact me about a patient that's on buprenorphine and needs a surgery. I can tell you from the data what doesn't work. So someone's on buprenorphine and then you decide to stop the buprenorphine about four or five days before the surgery. The surgeons, I think, and anesthesiologists' ideas, hey, I want to open up those opioid receptors so that when they wake up from the surgery, I can treat their pain. But the patient comes in in full-blown withdrawal. Sometimes their surgeries even have to be canceled because they're feeling so bad. So don't do that. Um, and then again, it's complex what can happen um, for some patients that are on, let's say, eight milligrams of buprenorphine a day. There are the opioid receptors that are still available. So as the um, patient, the patient can continue to take their buprenorphine, have the surgery, and then they, when they wake up, the surgeons can give their typical um, opioids uh, in the acute setting in the hospital to try to control their pain. And then just need to know, you can take Tylenol and ibuprofen, you can use heating pads and ice packs, and you can help the patient to get through. Um, and then if the patient is on a, a 16 or 24 milligrams of buprenorphine, sometimes it is more difficult when they wake up, if they've stayed on their buprenorphine, when they wake up from the surgery um, to control their pain. And so really it's working on multimodal anesthesia um, and uh, pain management when they wake up. So again, I want to say Tylenol and ibuprofen work. Sometimes you have to use gabapentin and, and other medications. But again, uh, it's complex. Great question. There's not a randomized controlled trial that gives us the definitive answer, but I would drive folks to those websites. Uh, again, I want to say Harvard um, University of California, San Francisco, and Stanford have good websites that help surgeons. Given how complex patient-centered care can be, how complicated it can be, it's not uncommon, of course, for people to use multiple substances concurrently. One study, I, I think, showed 88 to 94 percent of people using illicit opioids having multiple SUDs. And so what do you do when you have a patient who needs to be initiated on buprenorphine or is currently prescribed buprenorphine and also testing positive for other substances, maybe THC or methamphetamine? Yeah, this is a tough one because I do want to um, emphasize what you said, that um, use out there is really polysubstance use anymore. 
Um, patients are, um, when they are trying to stave off withdrawals, trying to take care of their cravings, they'll take just anything that they can. They really do fear withdrawal. It's like the flu times 10, and they don't want that again. So they'll take multiple substances to try to stave that off. The other is that, honestly, the the drug supplies out there are adulterated with everything. So some patients will say, um, I smoked meth, and they'll be positive for three or four different substances when we get a urine drug screen. They really don't know what is in the drugs anymore. But what I would say is, hey, there's one thing that we can we can do right now for somebody that has an opiate use disorder. And opiate use disorders can lead to overdose and overdose death. And that's uh, prescribed buprenorphine. And oftentimes when you prescribe the buprenorphine and you, um, you get the patient to trust you and they feel better, they're not going into withdrawal, the cravings are driven to zero or near zero, the other substances will fall away. Not always though, but oftentimes they will because they start feeling better. And again, they can start doing life. They, they can get their job back. Uh, they can help get their kids on the bus in the morning for school, other things. So what do we do though for the person that is on buprenorphine? They're not taking any more opioids. That's great, but they're, they're persistently positive, let's say for marijuana or THC. And what I would say is in the harm reduction model, we wanna say like, this is good that they're on the buprenorphine because what's the alternative here? They're taking THC every day. And then you say, I'm not gonna be able to treat you. So you stop the buprenorphine. Well, from if they're early in the recovery, like we talked about before, from the last dose of the buprenorphine, they're going to start having withdrawal, and then they're going to have cravings, and then they're going to return to use with, let's say, injecting fentanyl, plus taking THC every day. Well, we're not winning. They, they have a chance now of acquiring HIV, hepatitis C, or unfortunately overdosing or overdosing and dying. So I, I recommend in the harm reduction model, continue the buprenorphine, particularly if they're doing well on it, and then ask the second order questions about why the patient's taken the THC. And oftentimes you'll hear, hey, I have a lot of anxiety. Well, I'm in primary care, I can take care of that. That's called an SSRI and getting them to behavioral health. Or they say, I'm having a lot of trouble sleeping, that's why I smoke every night. And I'm like, hey, here's my sleep hygiene handout, Let's try melatonin, kind of go down your list. And oftentimes you can actually um, help the patient with, um, with the reasons that they're taking the THC. You know, we have discussed detox much. Much of the public thinks that treatment is synonymous with detoxification or rehab. Where does the medical community then stand on abstinence-based treatment like detox? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I want to say that... Uh, there are four ways to treat opiate use disorder in the United States. Um, if a patient um, um, kind of raises their hand and tells their provider, hey, I, I want help. And so one is detox and abstinence. The uh, other are, are three FDA approved medications. One's buprenorphine, which we've been talking about today. Another is methadone. And, and then the third is uh, naltrexone. So just talking about the detox and abstinence, it is still the number one way that we treat um, opiate use disorder in the United States. And, but what, what you need to know is that whether someone goes into a 14 day, a 28 day, or a 90 day uh, inpatient stay, let's just pick the 90 day one um, out where I am out west in the mountains. There's lots of uh, nice, pretty places to uh, stay out there and uh, these detox facilities. And they really are trying to help people. Um, and uh, let's, let's say that some of them can be quite expensive, um, 10, 20, $30,000 to do this. But you have to know that 
90% of the folks, when they leave, after 90 days of not taking any opiates at all, 90% of them will return to use within six months to a year. And when they do, their tolerance is, is really low and they could overdose and die. So I am an all of the above person. And so for that 10% that make it through and are in long-term recovery without any medications, um, further use disorder, that's great for them. Um, and I've met many of those people. And um, I want to say again, I am an all of the above person. So that's great if that's helpful for those folks. But, but do know that if they take, let's say, buprenorphine or methadone, 50% of people will lock into your program, do everything that you ask of them. And if you were to get a urine drug screen at, let's say, 6 to 12 months, they'll have buprenorphine in it and no other opioid. And when we're talking about life or death, 50% is better than 10%. So if a buprenorphine patient then returns to active opioid use, how do you think of that? Is that considered in your community a, a failure then? What, what happens? How, what do you do about it? What's best practice then? Yeah, this is a great question and one that I've had to struggle with and know that I've done it differently earlier in my career. Um, and uh, so what I l like to try to do is get back to that diabetes analogy again. So I believe that opiate use disorder is a chronic disease. And I actually believe that it's a chronic relapsing disease like asthma or diabetes. So let's go to the, uh, the type 2 diabetic. You've been seeing them for a whole year and their, um, their A1C, their hemoglobin A1C is 7.0. It's great. And then uh, three months later, you uh, see them again and you're like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, great. All of my sugars are between 80 and 120. And you're like, awesome. But you know what? You still get an A1C just to kind of check in. And when you do, their A1C is 11. And in a curious and non-judgmental way, you say like, hey, help me to understand. You're saying your sugars are great, but this A1C says your sugars are like, you know, 250, 300, and you have a conversation and you don't fire the patient. You, uh, you say, hey, maybe I need to see you more often. Maybe you need more medication. Maybe you need to see the nutritionist. But you're expecting diabetes to have some waxing and waning to it. It's a chronic disease that has some uh, relapses at times. And you treat the patient. And we're good at that in primary care. Many people are good at it. Um, and I want to, to posit that that opiate use disorder is a chronic relapsing disease as well. So now when a patient is doing well, let's say for a whole year, their urine drug screens have been as expected, but then they return to use and they have um, some opiate in their, in their urine drug screen. I uh, address them in a curious and non-judgmental way. Hey, tell me what's going on. How can I help you? And oftentimes if you um, lay it out that way, take care of the patient, get them to behavioral health or see them more often, help them to get back on their, um, their plan to recovery, they do well and they, and they um, continue to go into long-term recovery. Dr. Blake Fagan, Clinical Director of Substance Use Disorder Initiatives at Mountain Area Health Education Center, Mayheck, in Asheville, North Carolina. Dr. Fagan, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, head over to the Governor's Institute's YouTube page for more. That's youtube.com slash govinst, G-O-V-I-N-S-T. Thanks for listening.